If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Yo, and welcome to the 94th episode of Lake of Rage, a Pokemon trading card game podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin Clementi, a.k.a. Mellow underscore Magikarp, and joined today by a very special temporary guest host. Joining us for the first time, we have a legend in the game, the one and only Sam Chen. Sam, how are you doing today? Hey, Kevin. Happy to be here. That was that introduction was more than I deserved. Uh, very happy <laughs> to be on or podcast uh, longtime listener as I've told you in person um, but very very happy to come on today to talk about a very important topic I have to before we do go on uh, you did come up to me Vancouver last year at the time you're listening to this you might be at Vancouver for this year but Vancouver last year you came up to me and uh, I was with JP and stuff so I guess I you know it was next to each other already but you're like oh yo I you're Mellow Magikarp. I love the podcast. And you're one of the people who like, you were a huge name. And it's like, I was like so starstruck. Cause when I first started, it was like, bro, that's Sam Chet. <laughs> like he just said that he loves the podcast. I was like, uh, uh, thanks bro. <laughs> like, I didn't know what to say from there. So that meant so much no, to me. No. I, I legitimately enjoy listening to, to your podcast. I think you do, you know, very wide variety of topics, very interesting, and the guests are good, and you're a good facilitator as a host. And, and I do listen to almost every episode when I when I when YouTube recommends it to me, <laughs> my recommended videos, I will I will click on it. Shout out to YouTube for that one. And if you are listening on YouTube, be sure to hit subscribe so you get recommended those videos more frequently. But speaking of the wide array of topics, we have a very special one for you today. We're going to talk a lot about organized play and why it is seemingly terrible. <laughs> for the Pokemon trading card game. Uh, Sam, is that a correct adjective? Can you co-sign that one for me or did I go too far? Um, terrible is not the adjective I would use. Um, I think the more political way to say it is <laughs> there is plenty of room for improvement. Um, it's a work in progress, if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are lots of shortcomings and general lack of transparency and lack of uh, incorporation of player feedback or even the solicitation of player feedback is, um, you know, many, many problems that could potentially be solved. Let's see, y'all see why I invited Sam on this one. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to go ahead and get in some rap strike questions because it's the first time that he has joined us on the pod. Then we're going to get to know Sam a little bit, his history as a player, because uh, it's a name that, you know, you just top 16 to OCIC. Congrats on that, by the way. But uh, thank you. Thank you. Some people might be like, oh, that's a name I'm kind of like seeing around and not realize that there's a lot of other accomplishments in there and a long storied history in the game. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to talk about how did organized play get to this point? What's been some of the history? Why is why are tournaments run the way they are? Why is the world's invite structure run the way it is? And then, of course, will things actually get better? Where is the light at the end of the tunnel realistically sitting for us as Pokemon trading card game players? Also, uh, you'll notice that there was no podcast in your feed last week. Be sure to follow at Lake of Rage Pod on Twitter for updates or just be don't be surprised when there's the occasional one that's missing because I'm at a regional or something or I'm uh, raising a child 
and my wife is doing something else. So that's why I wasn't there last week. Be sure to follow the Twitter for that one. Are you ready for your rapid strike question, Sam? There's no single strike or fusion strike questions we could have instead. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, I did not prepare any of those. So uh, you're stuck with these. I will, I will do my best. I will <laughs> do my best not to embarrass myself. Perfect. Uh, I don't know if you did listen to the episode we had Alex Cook on, but he got in one minute, I think, four questions answered. So uh, you, can, okay. you, you can beat that for sure. <laughs> okay, I will try. I will try. Perfect. So no explanation. Straight off the dome. 60 seconds. Are you ready? I am. Question number one, winter or summer? Oh, summer. What's your favorite snack? Uh, there's a Taiwanese snack called uh, stinky tofu. And I love that. What's your favorite retro format to play? Um, 2017 Nats or Worlds. Favorite deck uh, ever? Moon. Um, the obvious answer is Riepagar, but I would say Typhlosion Ninetales from back in the day. Would you rather be late or be early? I would rather be early, but I'm always late. <laughs> What's your favorite world location? Ooh, um, Hawaii, for sure. Super salad. Uh, soup. Toppings on your perfect pizza. I like Hawaiian, but I'm also Canadian, and that's a Canadian thing. What color sleeves do you use? Um, Dragon Shield uh, blue, sky blue. Juniper, sycamore, oak, rowan, or magnolia? Oak. And that I have a good answer for that, too. Is that. time. So that's a perfect time to All segue right. into then. Why? And oak is correct. But why oak? Okay. Okay. So the reason I have oaks is because when I came back um, after I took a hiatus over COVID to get engaged and, you know, buy a house and all that fun stuff. And when I came back, I needed to buy cards and I knew research was going to be a card that was going to be a staple. So I bought like 40 of them <laughs> and the celebrations ones were like six cents each because so many people opened celebrations for the chase card and like the next cheapest one was I think Rowan because no one likes that art. Uh, True. Uh, or actually, I, I don't remember if it was Rowan, but um, basically, oaks were six cents piece, and it, the nostalgia factor of um, of oak uh, being um, you know the original, the OG discard draw seven effect. Uh, so I had to go with oaks research, or not oaks research, but the Professor Oak art of professors research. And then for favorite deck, you said. Drampa Garb is the obvious choice. Why is it the yeah. obvious choice? And then we'll get into why the other deck you picked. Ah, sure. I had a pretty good run in the 2017-2018 season, primarily piloting Drampa Garb. This is when Guardians Rising first came out through that world's format. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I had won a regional um, with Drampa Garb in Seattle, and then I had top... I uh, got third place at the North American International Championships and then proceeded to get eighth place at Worlds all with that same deck. And then um, a few months later, got top eight again at Vancouver Regionals with that deck. Um, so it was in a string where of eight majors where I top eighted six of them and probably my best individual streak in, in my life of, of in terms of Pokemon stuff. What drew you to Drampa Garb? Because I didn't play standard back then. By the time I played it, that deck was expanded only. <laughs> So why was it so good? Why yeah. is it so fun? 
So the full story is when Guardians Rising first came out. So I, I work with a group called X Files, and one of those people on X Files was Tyler Nunamira. And we had a forum where we just share deck lists, and Tyler had been testing this Drampa Garb deck. Um, and I actually took it to a city championship in New York, because I lived there at the time, and I wanted to sort of test pilot it to, you know, sort of report on how the deck functioned and how the results were in a sort of a live tournament. And I actually ended up winning that city championship um, with the Drampa Garb. And it was sort of a different list. We had like a Mewtwo... Um, EX in there, Mewtwo GX, EX. The we had Mewtwo... No, no, no. The uh, the super regenerator one that healed. Oh yeah, yeah. healed damage and the energy absorption. It was actually a counter to Sylveon, so you can heal sixty um, uh, to get rid of the the one ten damage from Sylveon, and then you can energy absorption to bring energy back, so Sylveon can never hammer you out of energy. Um. So like there's some different cards in the original list, but then at Seattle Regionals, you know that deck had done really well at cities, and some of my teammates had also done pretty well in their city championships. So we thought, hey, this is probably the best deck in format. And you have to keep in mind, this is a time when information wasn't as freely available online. There weren't online tournaments every night, so you couldn't just go online and see a list. And so a lot of real-life testing was sort of necessary. And so that's why we brought Drampa Garb to Seattle Regionals. Um, Tyler and I actually played one card off. I just didn't believe in the Shaman, even though he thought it was necessary. And so um, I got first, he got third. Great event for all of us that played it. All of us that top 32 that played the list. Um, As you're speaking so, about you know, this, sort of... I'm sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, I pull, I'm pulled up the Seattle regionals and just looking at the list and the number of names that I recognize as a Seattle local of players who you recognize from the X-Files or possibly had the list from, you know, Tyler and whatnot is. Yeah. I mean, it was for sure the best deck in the format. People were unprepared to play against Trash Lanch. Um, like, Trash Lanch single handedly killed Trainer's Mail as a reasonable card to play in a lot of decks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, every time my opponent would like Trainer's Mail for Ultra Ball or Trainer's Mail for VS Seeker, I'm like, oh, that's just plus 40 damage for me later in the game. Um, and so, so, yeah. And then so I kept playing that deck through NAIC since. Uh, for NAIC, I tested everything, but it was the only deck that I felt comfortable with. And then for Worlds, again, I knew going into Worlds, this is the deck I have to play. Yeah. So how were you able to... So you said people weren't prepared for it at Seattle Regionals, which is the same story I've heard. Anyone listening to this, go scroll through it, and there's a random Lapras, and then there's a Vespaquin, and then it's all Garbodor, like all the way down, right? How did you keep finding success if people eventually figured out how to play around Trash Alanche? Um, yeah, Trash Lanch is like, for many decks and archetypes, it's like impossible to play around um, Trash Lanch. Mm -hmm. um, not until Guardian DX came out um, was there sort of a reasonable way to, with Twilight GX, but not until Guardian GX came out was there a reasonable way to consistently, or a top deck to consistently not play items or retrieve those items from the discard. Um, I think... You know, the, as much as you want to play around it, the Drampagar player can also be very defensive and move things and, you know, take the lines that are that are as defensive as possible. Like, for example, at NAIC, there was a game against Philip Schultz where I believe I Righteous Edged seven or eight times just to discard energy and pile damage on the field instead of taking knockouts. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that because he played a Zygarde, which I had no counter for. And so I basically could not take a prize until he had like one or two prizes left. And then I had to end and pray. <laughs> um, so that was my entire strategy is to not take prizes. And I think that's one of the things that made 
the deck difficult to play against, especially in an N-toxin format, where uh, toxin being the Garbotoxin Garbodor that could trainer lock if there was a tool attached to it. Um, excuse me, I, um, um, ability lock. Wow, trainer lock with a tool would be oh, insane. Oh, yeah. That's... Uh, um, that could ability lock with a tool attached. And <laughs> so with a deck that's naturally equipped to play N-toxin, you had multiple modes. And unless your opponent knew exactly what they were doing, it was very difficult to play against. And um, there's also something else I did is I actually played 20 games against myself of Drampa Garb Mirror. <laughs> so I learned that matchup inside. It was painful. That's dedication right painful. there. It was, oh, it was it was horrible. Um, but I learned the in and outs of the matchup and like when you're supposed to take prizes, when you're supposed to attack with Trubbish and Garbodor. Mm-hmm. Um, was this the acid, acid spray? spray okay. And not yeah, with Garbodor's 70 damage, flip a coin if heads discard energy attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I used Acid Spray like way more than people did because sometimes you actually want to sacrifice your first Trubbish so your ends become a little more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to like chip damage and especially like sometimes you knew the math of Drampa or tra- uh, Trash Lance hits later. Like the 10 chip sometimes makes a difference and if there's a 50-50 chance to force them to attach another energy card... Um, so there's many control aspects to that deck, um, even though it's a take prizes deck. And so um, I think I just got better at playing it. And there was definitely um, some skill difference in terms of, you know, if you, if you didn't know what you were doing against it, some matchups were almost like 90-10 against people who didn't know what they were doing. Um, and then that match, that same matchup could be like 55-45 if both sides were playing perfectly. So you mentioned the Philip Scholl specifically that matchup, but this kind of idea of this hand disruption is so important, right? Like giving up prizes so your ends are more like powerful, right? Because N is based off the number of prizes your opponent has left and you, but number of prizes your opponent has less so they can draw less cards. This is something that we see all the time. Obviously, N doesn't exist anymore, but it's like, oh, Marnie's beating people or a constant Marnie path spam or judge path spam. How do you, as someone who knows you are a good player, so let's go, let's go back to 2017, Sam, right? So you know that you sit down, you're probably more skilled or experienced or whatever than most people are going to sit down against. How do you put down, like, I'm going to kind of prey a little bit on this hand disruption and bricking my opponent a little bit as a valid strategy to win the game? If that question made sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I know what you're asking. So, like, specifically in that match against Philip Schultz, I found out game one he played Zygarde, mm-hmm. Zygarde EX, which for um, fighting colorless did 60 damage with a choice band, did 90 damage times 2, 180 kills Drampa, and that's why exactly why he played it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that matchup, I can't win a traditional prize trade. I just can't. Like, there's no ch- – unless he prizes – like, do I go over the 10% chance he prizes Zygarde? Or maybe let's just say five percent chance that he prizes I guard and also doesn't get it off his first three prizes. Um, also, at that time, I knew the Schultz brothers liked to play town map, so also um, so I, and I assume both Robin and, and Philip like doing it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, he's he might have a town map in there as well to like dig the I guard out. So I can't, I just literally cannot start swinging with my normal strategy. I just have to go in and try to come from behind. So there's certain situations like that. Other times, after a couple turns in a game. Um, you just realize, hey, I'm down in prizes. If I just keep prize trading, I'm not going to win. So what I need to do is I need to target specific energy or attackers on their board with Lysander mm-hmm. and then take that knockout. And then eventually, you know, he has to or she or she has to attack 
with a um, worse attacker and then that doesn't potentially one-shot a Lele or a Trampa and then, then I end them that turn. So really, like, if you can sort of map out the game in your head and you're going to be behind in tempo by a couple turns um, or by a turn or two, then then you sort of pivot your strategy and see what do I give up and, and you know, how do I... What do I want the board state to look like when I'm ending my opponent down the road? Mm -hmm. And back then, you know, decks played four Ultra Ball, three Lele, or four Lele, like four N, four BS Seeker. So like, like what, a fifth of your deck, more than a fifth, uh, almost a quarter, a, a, more than a quarter of your deck is ways to find N. Mm -hmm. So you can reasonably say, if I want to end my opponent any turn, I have access to that. And also to like answer sort of something you brought up or respond to something you brought up a bit earlier about mm -hmm. the Marnie situation, I think there's a huge difference between N and Marnie um, or Judge in that Judge played on the very first turn with a Judge path. That's like a Marshado let loose. And that card was banned for very good reason. Yeah. Um, whereas N is like giving your opponent a Cynthia. So like it's having, you know, after the draw for turn, having access to five cards versus seven cards sometimes makes a huge difference. Like... Cynthia is a card, Shuffle Draw 6, that people voluntarily played in their deck because it was like a very, very good supporter. People played four of, of that card. Mm -hmm. um, so N, really, you don't have to... You choose when you get to a position to get N into, you know, nothing um, or into low number of cards. And you can... Many games, you can sort of... I mean, sometimes you can't control it because you just have to go for it. Yeah. But sometimes you can really control, like, I'm not going to take this prize. And something else that potentially helped in that format was that it was a two-prize format a lot of the time. EX prizes were, um, the two prizes were two shots often. Um, sometimes, obviously, there was one shots happening, but it's mostly a two-shot format. And in that two-shot format, you can actually choose when to take the knockout, right? You can mm -hmm. say, I'm not going to take this knockout. I'm going to Lysander hit that other thing. So I'm not losing any damage. Um, I guess Parallel City can heal, many other things can heal. But in theory, I can, you know, I can snipe something else without having to take prizes and in sort of one shot formats, that's less possible to control um, as we have sort of today. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. There was no amazing rare Veltal to just say you're knocked out or quad power tablet cross fusion strike technoblast, right? Like <laughs> that's slightly different. Yeah, the wild thing was like in that Nats format, the closest thing to a one-shotter was Drampa. And to get a one-shot, you need not only three energies attached, you need a choice band and a damage bench Pokemon, which either meant you needed to an also another energy, uh, you need a rainbow on one of your bench Pokemon, or you need to play a Team Magma base and then bench something. Like it's like a five or six card combo to get a one-shot instead of like, oh, once you have two Archeops out, just a quick ball and, and you know... And the world's your oyster. Like, yeah, it's it's definitely a very different and slower uh, format. So that, this wasn't one of our topics, but do you have hope that the game's going to get back to that heyday? Are these uh, reveals of Scarlet Violet making you think, yeah, this is this is possible to get back there? Or are we kind of in this accelerated format forever? I mean, I think it's very telling that even after Scarlet Violet came out and you have like this Gardevoir EX that the dominating decks in Japan are still um, the single prize Lost Box plus uh, the Lugia Tyranitar. <laughs> um, Stone like people are finding new ways to play Lugia mm -hmm. and also like the Mew EX. So it's, it's very telling that, you know, Gardevoir is like a very good card. Um, but even that is struggling to compete against some of the current meta decks. So I do think there's a bit of a reset, like looking at some of the like um, 
the uh, the the what is it? Great Tusk and like some of the fighting support, mm -hmm. looking at Miraidon and 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 uh, like some of that electric support. There's definitely like a slowdown in the game. I do love the fact that there's the new um, that uh, the new two prizers like the EXs have to evolve from non EXs. One of the main problems I think with some recent meta games was that V stars and V maxes evolving from V's is that those V's were often bench sitters and. Like, if you remember, like, the Arceus Wars um, of maybe last year, where it's like, if you went first, like, okay, well, the, the ultimate goal is if your opponent only has one bench Arceus V, is to then get the, the V-Star for the DTE choice, um, what is it? It's a band, no, belt now, choice belt. Choice belt, Zigzagoon. Zigzagoon, um, yeah. right? And then get the 220 knockout, and then you win the game. Like, that will no longer be the case um, as much because, like... Um, and the problem is like, okay, like you bench, like even in Lugia Wars right now, if you go second and you think your opponent has a great chance to get a Lugia V, you start, you have to bench two Lugia Vs because a boss play, you know, with decks playing two Luminion now, like a boss play, just you're dead if you only have one Lugia V. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if that Lugia V dies, you just give up two prizes straight up. You just lost a third of the, you're just like, you're just a third of the, third of the way there. Um, and with no comeback mechanic, no true comeback mechanic, um, I guess Roxanne is a comeback mechanic, but Roxanne's like not that great because it's a dead <laughs> card for the first. You know, not consistency. Yeah. Like Eden adds consistency to your deck early game. Roxanne is just a dead card for half the game. Um, you know, like you can't even take advantage of the fact that you just gave up two prizes because you lost a coin flip and your opponent drew a little better. Um, so it's very different than if, like, for example, like the Ralts um, are basics. So like you can choose to either, you know, even if you hit a Ralt and 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 kill it. You know, you're giving up one prize instead of two, and I think that's a important but often neglected part of of the of why you know the Vmax formats were so fast, and maybe people felt like they weren't as good as previous formats. I think that was really well said. For we have a fair amount of listeners who were did not play pre V, or at least didn't play very much pre V. Of like why the GX and the Sun and Moon era pre tag team even was considered so you know beloved, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, even the first couple tag teams were. Oh, sorry. Even uh, just quick note. Even like the first couple tag teams, people didn't regard as like too toxic. Um, so, for example, like Pikaram had like a one card counter in Buzzwall, and yes, it needed to be a four prizes, four prizes left in a specific situation. But like you could force it that. was still possible. You can yeah, you can sort of build a deck like Zap Beast was such a good deck because you could force that situation and you have one turn to knock out that Pikaram. So Pikaram players started not putting the Pikaram down until they had four prizes left. Or until they were past that threshold, so they would attack with Zapdoses and, and whatnot, and sacrifice Jirachis until you got. So it's like there was still like some sort of skill expression there, um, but I think the older, the the newer tag teams just got too much HP and got a little too degenerate, and then sort of format went downhill from from there. That was completely unnecessary aside, but it's my podcast. One of the like vivid memories I have of an opponent's reaction. It was game one of Denver Regionals. I was playing Picaron, but I was playing Gustavo Wada's build with the Jolteon and like three Zapdos. And I was playing it like a Zapdos deck. And I used Jolteon's GX attack into the Sledgehammer turn. So it, Jolteon can't be damaged. And they're like, okay, right. you know, whatever. They go KO a Jirachi off the bench or something. And then I go Picaron, Coco Prism, Thunder Mountain, Attach, Full Blitz. And just the, the like, the yeah. what? Like, excuse me, you're Picaron the whole time? Was It was beautiful i've made me so happy to just see that reaction 
Yeah, yeah. And like that's why the first tag teams uh, were not so unbalanced because like you were afraid to bench it Mm -hmm. in certain Oh, yeah. Like, right? You can't just bench it with impunity and and say, well, you know, I'm going to start attaching and you're going to lose. Like, there was still some skill around, hey, I'm not going to bench this Picaram or else I'm going to lose the game if I bench it. Um, That no longer existed after a while with the (laughs) Yeah. Especially when they removed ADP's weakness through a clever errata by just eliminating the fairy type altogether. That was, you know, that was that was good card design right there. <laughs> card design, yeah. And then uh as a quick you also mentioned Ninetales Reshiram as the actual no, no Ninetales Typhlosion Ninetales. Typhlosion Ninetales. Yeah. Okay, this one yeah, I actually so have no I idea. Have, I actually have the deck with me. Um, have you just never unsleeved it or do you rebuild it no this is one of the decks i just have on my desk because it's so like it's these it's these cards i guess this is the kalava it's these two cards oh this Uh, is wizards of the coast yeah that's not what i was expecting yeah so i actually won my very first major event um which was a super battle zone in 2003 with this deck and i have it sleeved um right here um, <laughs> i actually same cards this wasn't like a show and tell oh these are the same cards the exact cards oh that's so good with, with the best card ever printed yeah these were like <laughs> uh so it was the neogenesis typhlosion with the legendary collection nine tails which is a reprint of the base set nine tails mm-hmm. so and i, and I, th- I thought actually it's actually super cool that in 2003 Power Creep wasn't that bad that a card from four years ago from the base set was still like a very viable, viable card to play in a deck. That is there. There was a lot of bad card design in that era, but it is interesting how the Pokemon in general didn't get significantly better or worse through Rocket and Jim and then even Neo up until, you know, Slowking and Sneasel, I guess, if you want to count them. If you want to count the the wrong yeah. sloking, right? Like everything was kind of the same. Same HP hit the same damage. It was a very interesting. The trainers, on the other hand, let's not talk about those. Well, the, the trainers, they actually realized the huge mistakes they were making. Um, so like from Neo Genesis, they print Professor Elm, which is shuffle your hand in your deck, draw seven, but no more trainers for the rest of the turn. Mm-hmm. And and they also printed like double gust, which is just the worst gust of wind. Because your opponent got to do this. So people had to build their decks around like playing double gust. Yeah. Um, so they sort of realized that. And and they and like in, in the Ruby and Sapphire block, they printed energy removal two. Crushing hammer. Just energy removal and a and like Pokemon Reversal, which is which is poke oh, which is a gust of wind on a coin flip. So they realized that, oh man, we we had some <laughs> we had some pretty broken cards in the first in the first uh first first set. Um, of the game and they sort of corrected that and so yeah i mean it's a it's a pretty beloved format i guess as well because of the nostalgic reasons and also as you said pokemon were sort of balanced um, with the exception of slow king which is a whole other story and the fraligator they didn't test very well oh that's true uh anyway let's jump into we've been talking for over 25 minutes i'm sure we can keep talking about old format stuff maybe we'll have you back on to talk about other history stuff for sure but uh sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
I want to talk a little bit about organized play stuff. And the reason that I asked you, and I, I think I told you this beforehand, but the reason I asked you is when I first started playing, I remember you went on a, a seemingly a mission. I don't know where, like it was a chicken egg thing where you decided to prove that the system was so broken that you were just going to fly to SPEs, which are regionals without prize money and very often had attendances of like 60 or less people. Some are a little larger. But they gave regional level CP just to prove that you could day two just by doing like these things to prove how broken the system was. And so when I thought about like, who can we have on to talk about how broken the system is? And Sam is the perfect person. So I don't know if you want to start yeah. with that or if you want to start with a little bit about the organized play part. But uh, why is the system what it is? <laughs> Yeah, so first on the system and then on the why. Okay. So this is 2018 when they started shadow dropping SPEs, meaning that they would like not make it publicly announced. Like I didn't find out about the, there was a um, an SPE in Bogota, Colombia, like, like the South American country, Colombia, that I just did not know about. I mean, like you have to be scouring the tournament listings to even see or maybe following or having friends in the area. Mm -hmm. And so I was like pretty upset and, um, but at the point I was already, I was already like locked in top 16 when this was happening. So this is when I was, I guess, better as a player. So, um, I already, yeah, I was, I was already locked in top 16 at that point. Um, uh, but so I was like, okay, you know what? This is a really, really stupid system. And so my response was then to because no one was really doing it until a few people started doing it and i i don't blame these people for traveling to these events at all because you know like it's available right this is yeah. this, these are the rules of the game the rules may not be very fair to poorer people um but at the same or or people who you know have jobs that they can't just leave but you know that's that's it's what the, the rules are it's so, what we signed up for technically and so i booked a last minute trip to jakarta um, and it was a very expensive trip. The only way I was going to make any money back on this trip was if I won the event. Um, so I had a 31, 32 hour flight from Los Angeles <laughs> to Seoul, to Singapore, to Jakarta, mm -hmm. to hotel last minute and went to play at Jakarta regionals, um, won the event, uh, and then flew back. And then the week after I was in Sao Paulo for an IC. Uh, and then I was like, screw this. I'm just going to, you know, demonstrate how broken this system is because like, you know, you're the relatively richer American players and some American players like, oh, well, they're not that rich. Okay. Like just as a country, America is one of the richest countries in the world. Mm -hmm. So like players mm -hmm. from this country can then fly to, you know, events that are designed for locals to get CPs because they realized, hey, like there aren't enough regionals in these regions. We want to make sure locals have a chance to play um, and have a chance to get CPs to get their world's invite. And we have like these Americans flying in to farm them. And so I went then that later that year to Mexico City SPE, uh, which is actually a quite difficult event. A lot of good players were there, like Zach Lesage, Danny Altavilla, Rahul Reddy, Jose Marrero. That's one that others. screams uh, to me not hard to get to. Like I assume, right? Like, no, it was not hard to get to. But still, it's like a you know, if you think about it, it's like still a cost, right? Like, think oh, of for sure. how much money. Passport. Like it's a, it's a, even if yeah, yeah, the passport, international flight, like, um, you know, even if even if it's a couple hundred dollars, these pile up, and like mm -hmm. it's not really fair to have like a top sixteen chase when certain people can, and other people, you know, 
to, to get to that Mexico City SPE, uh, you know, you probably have to take Thursday, Friday off work, let's just say at the bare minimum. Um, and so like, you would have to not only work a job where you have that flexibility, but also then have the money to say that spending, you know, $500 on a trip to a tournament where I don't get any cash pricing is worth it for me to do this one thing. And so then I, mm -hmm. yeah, so I, it was actually a pretty tough event. Um, I guess it wasn't, the chances were, of winning were much higher than regional, but like in terms of the quality of player, it was, it was certainly not that bad. And then I went the week after the Cancun SPE. <laughs> that um, just sounds great. More there. Oh, that it was great. Um, this was prior to the alcohol policy of, of Pokemon. Um, <laughs> Uh, at some point yeah. and there was an open bar outside the venue and uh, like literally the venue's door was here and then like around the corner was a bar um, and it was an all you can drink one day pass and so we thought <laughs> why not go for it like, how, how what, could this what, be a bad uh, thing 60 bucks is fine it wasn't 60 bucks it was 15 us dollars <laughs> um bottomless like pina coladas and like and, and margaritas for the whole day and so between every round we would just go get a drink if we finished early um this was obviously all before pokemon's alcohol policy yeah um, i even tweeted i even tweeted like uh i think I, I tweeted at that point like what is the official pokemon policy on being on having a on, on like uh blood alcohol level at events <laughs> asking for a friend yeah so you're the it reason one of the added. <laughs> no i'm actually not the reason there was an underage incident a few years later oh the okay. for this as, as an adult at that time i was responsible with with drinking and not causing a scene at at the venue yeah good good choice always drink Just responsibly me. yeah yeah when you're when you're 26 or 27 you have better sense of what's responsible drinking compared to when you're like let's just say this child was 16 or 17 oh gosh yeah all right so you were able anyway. to travel all these sps right yeah yeah were there any others like is this already so much travel like listening to this even like pre you know kid me is like that's a lot like i've, I've got a full-time job i can't imagine getting off I Craig, I literally can't get that much time off. The teacher is like, hey, you have spring break and that's it, right? Which is like, cool. I, I'm super grateful for summer break and spring break, but you don't get to choose those days. They choose them for you. So like, how? How is this actually working? Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to work a job where I'm remote. I was even remote before COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so I work at a consulting company, um, building financial models for banks and other types of consulting work. And so um, I can always work remote and I have the type of work ethic where I'm willing to like put in 18 hour days for like three or four days straight just to get something done. Mm -hmm. Like I'm willing to just like sit there. Like I was always that way in school, like studying too. like people like um, I don't focus very well. And so like I have to have like some sort of goal in my head to be able to sit there and focus. Um, and but like as I got older, I'd like trained myself to be able to put my head to a task and, and, um, and get it done, especially if like the goal is, oh, I get to go to this trip to play this SP. So actually that was a period where I went to, um, I went to seven tournaments, all regional level and above in terms of CP payout mm -hmm. in seven weeks. It was <laughs> oh like, my gosh. Yeah. I, I don't know like the exact order of, I forget the exact order, but yeah. it was like, it was a Jakarta, Mexico, Cancun, Toronto, Madison, Sao Paulo, I'm missing, I'm missing one somewhere from that list. Yeah. Um, but that's, it'll, it'll come to me, but yeah, so, like I'm, I'm able to work 
on airplanes, sleep on airplanes pretty well. Um, yeah, just so you just if if that's something you want to do. I mean, it's not for everyone, and it's 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 certainly nothing I would recommend or even do again at this point. Um, but for the degenerates, I mean, I, I really just wanted to prove that it could be done to buy a day two invite, and that's not very competitively fair. Mm -hmm. It's very against. They, they've designed a tournament system that's like very against the very spirit of the game that they purport to uphold. So I want to play devil's advocate to the buy it real quick, because this is not a fun podcast if I just co-sign everything. No, 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 please. You I've, I've, I'm more than happy to, to take criticism <laughs> of this opinion. So you still like you can go to seven regionals in seven weeks or I see in there, whatever, who cares, right? Seven regionals in seven weeks. That doesn't mean you're going to perform at those regionals without good finishes. So where does that line get drawn between the day two invite of I'm just going to throw a bunch at the wall and eventually stuff will stick versus like you still have to get high finishes, right? Like, let's look at Piper this year at three regionals include a win, a win and a top eight, right? Like she is just the quality there is not something you can replicate just by going to every regional, right? So like, where does that come into play? So that year, there was no best finish limit, which was a huge oh, problem. Oh, God. So, <laughs> okay, there goes my argument, I guess. <laughs> yep. So that was one of the things that was majorly wrong that year. So if you picked up a top 256 here and a top 64 there, like those points get cumulatively added. Mm -hmm. Like, so if you go to 25 events and you get points at all of them, you get 25 finishes. Um. Yeah, that's so that's bad. I guess that's the counter argument there. But the other the other side is I think there is a um I mean there's a combination of things, right? One, like North America already gets a little bit shafted on day two spots in terms of our player base. Like we only get sixteen spots in terms of like active players and and you know it's it's not a not the not the correct ratio. Mm -hmm. Um and also there's a certain group of people that just have like, you know, I, I think there should be Yes, money is always going to be a part of it, like money and time, right? This is Pokemon is a hobby. This is not a job, not a career. Uh, sorry, as a player, it's not a career. You know, as a coach, you're working for the company, sure. But as a player, this is not a career. This is a fun thing, your interest, your hobby. And this is coming from, you know, I've always believed this, even at mm -hmm. when I was playing at the highest level. Right? This is, you're not making money on, you're not making money or supporting yourself on a tournament from tournament winnings, uh, plain and simple. Um, and so there is, you know, for, for the fact that they've set up this system where there is this prestige to winning internationals and worlds and, and finishing in top 16 and having an advantage going into day two of worlds, like the fact that they've set up this system for this thing, this, this carrot to chase, uh, you know, they need to make sure that system can't just be bought by people mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, can't just be bought out by the 16 above average players who have the largest wallets. And I think by changing certain things, it would allow it to be more like people who like Piper, who may not have that much opportunity to travel between school and, and other things she does um, to go internationally. Like she missed OCIC. She missed, um, I think LAIC as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not exactly sure why, but I'm friends with her. I haven't talked to her exactly why she missed the events, yeah. but like people who compete like it's a north american top 16 not like a globe trotter top 16 like hyper arguably and now andrew Hendricks are the two best north american players this season um i guess an argument can be made for azul and and you know his myriad of top 16s with his ic win yeah um and you know john 
and um, another time. Like, sure, internationals, yeah. sure. But like, it's it's. I definitely think that top sixteen should be representative of people of, of sixteen of the reasonably great players from your region, not sixteen players who are paying to travel to every event, and then as a result, getting an auto day two of worlds. I think it's interesting. I want to address the like what you just mentioned of like Piper and Andrew Hendrick. I have won multiple regionals this year, multiple gigantic regionals this year. Like even when you look at San Diego, it's like, bro, there's only like 800 something people, you know, pre COVID that was 800 person regional. <laughs> that's gigantic, right? Like that's something that I think they're both about in the top 16, but they're like, they're barely hanging in there. And I don't think either of them have been to any of the ICs this year. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know what to think about the, I mean, I do have some opinions, but I don't have like a, like a final conclusion on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that ICs are important to the game, but they're overweighted in terms of points. Would a best finish is it as simple uh, as putting uh, a best finish limit on it? I don't think so. I think Pokemon wants people to go to their flagship events, mm -hmm. so there's something to be said about that. Um, maybe a best finish limit could be helpful, but also I think lowering the payout to like mediocre finishes at ICs, like IC, I, I'm okay with like the like if you win IC 500 points, like you know you deserve it. Good job. Like I think yeah. Azul deserves the 500 points. I'll just speak for myself. I mean, I got 200 points for top 16 or finishing ninth at OCIC, which is equivalent of an American regional win. Mm -hmm. And if you want to think about it, it's basically a BFL-less, like outside the best finish limit, regional win. Um, yeah, for and it's, I mean, half the size technically, and there's another debate in there of percentage of good player versus yeah. not, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I think OCIs, I, I think the ICs, because they draw good players from every um, every region in the world, it's, it's it's I mean, it was 530-ish people, like, way harder than a 530-person American regional. Yeah. Like, just in terms of, the, like, just you hit random good players from other regions, like, just randomly playing through because that, there's a huge concentration of top players flying in. So I'm okay with, like, the difficulty of, of the event. I mean, it's just, you know, it's... Oceania, so it's far for everyone and expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, like, I, I'll, I'll give myself an example. I bubbled out of, um, or I was five three one at um, LAIC, and I got eighty points for it for finishing five three one. Eighty points is a top sixteen in a U.S. regional. Like, so just speaking to my own finishes, like, it is not. It is like quite high amount of CPs you get for just for myself, a pretty mediocre performance mm -hmm. at five, three, one. Um, so, I mean, there is something to be said about the chase and like paying for events, but I do think like SPEs are extremely bad offender um, of, of this because SPEs are generally in like hard to reach areas where like uh Flights are expensive, especially nowadays, and also the tournaments, you know, the quality of player on average is not very competitive compared to like a U.S. regional. Just a matter of fact, right? They didn't, people who played less, um, mm -hmm. nothing against those those areas, and the tournaments are much smaller. Um, like the Mexican SPs are are probably sixty to eighty people. Some of the South American ones are twenty people. Um, 
I mean, a yeah. lot of people from 2017, 2018, 2019 have gone to farm those events, myself included. And it's it's just like not very fair, not only to everyone else in the US, but oftentimes like they schedule SPEs with the idea that, oh, that 200 point could go to a local to help them get their world's invite, right? And to like to grow the game in a, in a smaller country or a smaller area, you want people from the local area to make the world championships. Because mm -hmm. like when you see someone make worlds, it sort of snowballs. You know, you see, oh, this person made worlds. I want to make worlds next year. Um, I have talked to people who find it a little discouraging um, um, that, you know, they're basically taking worlds invites away from, like, we're taking worlds invites away from weaker regions. The intent there is not to give Americans a CP farm or in, in, in a different part of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the idea there is to promote local play um, without having to pay out for a regional. Um, and, and obviously that, uh, at least before COVID that wasn't getting achieved by the SPs or, or the fact that, um, Americans were, uh, going into, to, to farm these points was, was not helpful toward the effect of getting more local players toward the world's invite. So the current like system is, and we had Henry Brand on at the start of the Lost Origin format explaining why top four in Oceania is literally one of the worst things I could have ever done for the game, right? Because it's like more than four people work together and now you can't work with your friends because blah, 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 right? Uh, LATAM gets eight, I believe. EU gets 22 and NA gets 16. Mm -hmm. Is that system ever going to become better if it stops being top X and starts being a CP threshold for each area? Or is it like top X is good and the rest of the system around it needs to be fixed? Or is this a like... Everything's just kind of messed up right now, and everything needs to get fixed. Like, just period. So do you know why it's 22 and 16 for Europe and America? My assumption, and please tell me when I'm wrong, but my assumption has been because Worlds is in North America every single year, and Europe has a giant player base, and it's to help more players get that stipend to travel over to North American Worlds. But I, that's purely just me guessing. So you are on the right track, but there is a very specific reason why it's 22 and 16. Mm -hmm. um, the 22 for Europe is because there used to be 11 national championships in Europe before they moved over to the international championship format. So the national championships used to pay out a travel award for first and second place to the world championships. Okay. Uh, and so with 11 nationals and 22 now travel awards, they didn't want to take anything away from Europe. The reason originally for those travel awards was to help them, the national champion and the second place finisher to be able to go to Worlds in the United States. Um, so you are correct about that part. But the reason why specifically it's 22 is just because of the 11 former national championships that existed. How long and ago was that? In North America, uh, up until 2015 up until 2014, 2015 season. Okay. I think. So it's been like eight years and they're like, yeah, this is fine. They've been like, yeah, this is fine. And it's 16 okay. in North America, probably because it's a nice power of two. As, a, as an <laughs> educational professional, you, you will probably understand that people choose 16 to, uh, as an arbitrary power of two and say, ah, you know, 16. Um, but that is actually the reason Valid. why. And so like I've done this analysis before and I've also done this analysis for like this season, just up until, you know, last week where like you can look at it by various metrics, right? Like the player base, um, 
and in you can look at like players with any championship points, which is sort of fair because like you need to, this year especially you need to go to regionals and then perform in top two fifty six or top one twenty eight level to get any championship points at all. Mm-hmm. So um, if you want to look at people with championship points in North America, there's about twelve hundred and fifty. In Europe, there's about four hundred and fifty. In LATAM, there's about two hundred and fifty. In Oceania, there's ninety ish people. Um, so you can already see sort of, yeah, you can see sort of the disparity, you know, North America, one, two, five, zero, Europe, four, five, zero. That doesn't tell the full story though, right? Because, um, you can also look at like average regional attendance for average regional attendance in North America. It's about 1,100 mm-hmm. for Europe. It's about 700. So you see that disparity drop a little bit. Um, and then for LATAM, it's 250 Oceania is 182, which is fine. Um, or then you can look at then people who have participated in organized play at all. And so we look at people with at least one play point. So this includes like pre-releases and things like that. Um, and includes so league, 18, right? 000. Like official sanctioned league yeah. gives a play point. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, so North America and uh, has about 18,200 people with at least one play point. Sheesh. Uh, Europe has about seven. Yeah. Europe has about 7,400. So just even the general player base, you'll see like Europe is about half the size of of of, of North America, mm-hmm. um, and then LATAM has thirty eight hundred and Oceania is nine hundred. And then the last metric I looked at is uh, people with three play points. And the reason why I looked at three play points is because reg- having attended one regional championship or like you're consistently going to these local events mm-hmm. to get play points. Um, so with three play points, North America is about fourteen hundred people. Europe has about 5,400 people. LATAM has 2,600 and Oceania has about 750. You said 1,400? So Do you mean 14,000 for North America? Uh, 14,000. Okay, okay. 14,000 cool. in North America have attended at least, uh, have at least three, um, three play points. And so, I mean, it's great for the game, right? This is showing these are pretty big numbers, even compared to historically, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that there's no local events. But if you break that down in terms of like, just in terms of, um, sheer um like there's 50 auto day two spots right as you mentioned there's like four um four plus eight plus 16 plus 22 that's 50 spots um if if you were to take the most even the most like conservative metrics that allocates the most um spots based on regional attendance so it's allocating more spots to lesser populated areas or lesser overall um, areas where people overall play um that would be uh, um, for the fifty spots. It would be twenty-four to North America, sixteen to Europe, eight to LATAM, and four to Oceania. And this is based on average regional attendance. Um, if you just look at the average regional attendance in those four territories, did you now, keep those numbers pretty say, on okay, purpose? <laughs> no, that's okay. exact. Okay. Like, <laughs> These numbers don't, these numbers actually get a lot uglier if you look at, um, like from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is based on just average regional attendance, which is like sort of the, and you can say there's small sample size, Oceania only had a few regionals, LATAM only had one, I think so far. Um, so, so yeah, it's not, you know, the greatest, uh, you know, there is some small sample size issues, but you see overall, like the ratio is like 24 North America, 16 Europe, um, eight, uh, six LATAM, four Oceania. Um, if you look at sort of the worst of the metrics, which is people with three play points or, or, um, 
to the least conservative in terms of handing spots out, three play points or people with CP, that would be 31 in North America, 11 to Europe, six to LATAM, and two to Oceania. So we can see by like tournament attendance, and obviously tournament attendance is a function of availability and mm -hmm. the fact that there's so many in America. But like in that range, right? Like if you want to do it sort of, and there's other metrics that I thought of just to keep it, just, just to keep it simple for, you know, the listeners, somewhere between 24 and 31 spots out of the 50 for North America and 11 to 16 spots for Europe. And if we, if we can even reduce that by a little bit to give more spots to Oceania to encourage people to play, I'm okay with that as well. Mm -hmm. for, and LATAM, the more developing zones. Um, but I think, yeah, the fact that 22 spots goes to Europe, 16 goes to North America, it's like pretty archaic and it's sort of entrenched and no one has, um, I guess it, it needs to be recalibrated at some point and will it ever change? Mm. <laughs> Not hopeful in, in the future. Um, because of you know some of the organized play issues that we spoke of before yeah. do you think like is this ever something that they're worried about the day two structure or is it and this is something most of our listeners are like bro day two is a pipe dream right i'm i've i've been inviting chill my whole time playing like day two isn't even a i've been in technically contention for an ic stipend twice and both times i've been like no, I'm not even going to another regional to do it, let alone anything else. So is day two something that they're even looking at? Or are they worried about that day one number? And then day two is like, meh, whatever. Day one will fix the day two stuff by the time it rolls around. They will never care about the day two number, I think. I think the current people at Organized Play have shown that they do not give a damn about <laughs> yeah. um, competitive fairness in day two. It's just like something that they, it's like a shiny, shiny carrot they can hold out mm -hmm. and like just it's a dogfight for it. And no one cares. Like, I don't think anyone, um, I guess it's unfair to say that anyone, people don't care. I think that anyone with the, anyone who works for Pokemon who cares are not the ones making the decisions about the tournament format. Yeah. Um, and regarding day one, too, I mean, look how long it took them to give us any information. I mean, they, <laughs> they knew well in advance that locals weren't coming back. I, I know for a fact that they knew mm -hmm. um, that that was the case. And they decided to not announce anything as January rolled around, like people anticipating, um, especially people with, um, you know, who are banking the world's invites on going to a lot of local events and filling them out in January. I know people who are locals of mine in California now who have told me like, yeah, they're just going to wait until January when <laughs> locals come around. So they're going to go to the regionals. And because it's so like prohibitively expensive to go to to go to East Coast regionals. Oh yeah. Like the most egregious my Baltimore flight was five hundred something. My flight to Peoria, just the flight, wasn't even a direct flight because Peoria is the wilderness um <laughs> you know of uh, it's it's just not Chicago. Why is it not Chicago? <laughs> because the tournament organizer wants to save money. Uh, I mean Peoria actually has yeah. Peoria actually has an even funnier story or even sadder story, depending on how you want to view it. Um, um, but my Peoria flight was $700, just the flight, not hotel, not, you know, food or any kind of, yeah, just 700. Okay. Oh, that's, that's um, outside Peoria of my story. budget for any listeners wondering that is, yeah. I set a budget of 400 is the maximal for a flight, which is not easy yeah. from the West coast. Yeah. This, this is a complete digression, but Peoria was supposed to be in St. Louis, but some logistical issues and incompetence overall <laughs> led to it being in place. 
that's all i'll say about tremendous. it. tremendous um tremendous yeah <laughs> um but back to the back to this point is like some of my locals were like hey we're gonna go to the west coast regionals in dallas right there's five there's vancouver uh fresno dallas salt lake and i'm missing one san diego so we're just gonna go to those and we're gonna fill in the, the 500 points with locals and the problem is then like you announced this halfway through if they knew in september that they weren't going to even like in, in there were some cheaper regionals you could have gone to on the east coast had they known they needed 350. So one of my friends who lives like 10 minutes away from me is like now literally going out to every regional and going to Knox. He went to Knoxville. He's going to like um, Charlotte and Fort Wayne, like yeah. just to chase his invite because it wasn't told to us earlier before that, oh, you need to get 350 points through um, through uh, um, just regionals and ICs. And it's a little like, honestly, it's a little hostile <laughs> To players, especially if they don't live in a geographically advantageous area to play Pokemon, like the Midwest or living by a hub, uh, an airport hub in on the East Coast. Um, and no, so like as much as they do emphasize day one, they also like this extremely poor planning of not being upfront about who makes worlds and how to make worlds is is like really unfortunate. Yeah. That announcement is such a like, because exactly what you're saying is just like something that I want to like extra cosign. Cause I think a lot of people out there will resonate with that as well of, okay, 500 is the goal. That means locals are coming back. If you know, at the beginning of the year, it's 350 without locals that might change. I'm not going to go to more regionals, or maybe I am going to extend out. And like I said, my budget would be 400 maximal for a round trip. Maybe I would extend out to 500, or maybe I'd say, screw that. I'm going to go down to 300 because I just going to go to the ones that are the best. Right. So it's, it's so unfortunate that it took them so long for something that it seems obvious. The worst part is like people, sure, your average player isn't going to win eight league cups throughout a year, right? But I think like for, for an average player, three league cup wins and a few points here and then, like it's very reasonable for someone to get 250 to 300 points through league cups, especially someone who grinds locals. Um, and people expected with locals being back, there would also be, you know, league challenges. So you can get another 50 points from league challenges, you know, assuming you don't win them all, but just random top fours and, you know, top eights and whatnot. So people can reasonably expect to get 300 points from locals. And so there was people who were banking on doing that and grinding that. And so for them, they, the plan at the original of the year, like I actually worked with someone on this, is like, how many points do I need to expect to get from, from regionals? And the answer is like, if you can get around 200 points from regionals, then you can, if you're willing to go every weekend to locals when they come back, you're gonna grind and get there. And like the fact that they reduced it by 150 um, like it's, it's really a slap in the face to a lot of fans who have been waiting for, for this to come back and, and, um, and, and yeah. What do you think? But, but you know, it's, it's what we have to live with and yeah. What do you think was the point of the one fit? This is purely speculation now, right? But like they lowered it by 150. And like you said, the 200 is about the number I would have expected, right? I'm thinking of myself in the first year that I competed, I earned 220 or something like that from regionals. And then I got my invite the previous year, the pre-COVID one off of what? 80 plus 60, whatever that is, 140 and the rest from locals. So like it was like uh, 200, yeah, sure, whatever, right? That's about That's about correct. But like, why would they lower it by 150? Why have 
is this just a random number that they picked out? Do they actually look at the data, do you think? Or like, have you tried looking at the data and being like, yeah, this is logically what makes sense? Or did they throw a random number at a wall? My suspicion is that they threw a random number at the wall. I think when it comes to TPCI and these decisions, you just have to assume there's no actual, like, They've already used both of their brain cells to even announce that there were no locals. So then to then set a threshold for a reasonable threshold for people to get their world's invite is not something that that I I I and this is all speculation, but I don't think that they did it. I mean, I, I think it's they took in 2016, I believe that was the year they lowered the invite to 350 or something, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, just lower it again. Mm, same number. I mean, it's possible that someone had a spreadsheet and spent five minutes on it as well. So, who knows? <laughs> I mean, is is a five minute spreadsheet really better than throwing a number at a wall? I mean, I what they really should have done is like mapped out like what level of finishes do we think someone should have to get worlds? Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe to 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 be a world's caliber player, maybe like one top eight at regionals, one top sixteen, and then you know, four top 64 finishes throughout the year. Maybe that's someone who's qualified enough for Worlds. So mm-hmm. that would be, you know, 100 plus 80 plus 200. So maybe they said, okay, that's three 380 down to 350. Maybe that's, maybe they did some back of the napkin math there. Yeah. Um, but obviously it's extremely difficult to top eight um, a regional nowadays, especially. Yeah, like only eight people do it. People yeah, only eight people do it. And there aren't that many people a year that do it. Yeah. I mean, I think this this comes to um, another point we were sort of talking about before we got on the start recording, which is about like, you know, organized play being a marketing function and not a, and not necessarily a organized play <laughs> function. Yeah. What, what do you mean by a marketing function? Yeah. So organized play, for those who don't know, sits under the marketing division of tpci like there's no like it's not it's not like oh like this is you know we want to it's not like sort of magic the gathering where their whole product is based on the fact that tournaments exist right and there is that to some extent in pokemon um but like magic started off as a card game so if there's no tournaments the game at least back in the day um, the game would just die um, pokemon as a franchise the card game is sort of auxiliary to the overall media franchise and so um, the goal, the overarching goal of play Pokemon and the organized play is to make money for Pokemon. It's marketing. And we are in a weird spot right now, right? Like some people complain about pricing, um, which I think is valid. Um, some people complain about why is there no communication and transparency. We have to understand that like TBCI and Pokemon in general is already getting the marketing benefit of having run events. You know, there are these regional streams. There are, um, there's like world and IC streams that, you know, Pokemon is getting talked about still in the YouTube mm-hmm. culture, I guess, in, in the general, you know, in the, in the general gaming zeitgeist. Pokemon is considered one of the three OG card games with Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, for, they are getting that benefit, that marketing benefit of of staying relevant, of getting talked about, and also just having those media clips to be able to, you know, market the game. And so, you know, I, I also do think there is some benefit to Pokemon for, like, there being something to do with these cards. Like, if there was no organized play and people were just collecting it, I think the game would not sell as well. Um, and, I, and I know for a fact, and this is something that people may not be aware 
but like 90% of Pokemon TCG sales are like little kids going to buy, you know, EX boxes at their local big box store. It is not the competitive player. And so they need to balance, you know, they need to balance the fact that uh, the game really, they're not making that much money off the competitive scene mm -hmm. um, in terms of like competitive players buying cards. They're making money by marketing the idea that there is this Pokemon trading card game that you can play with your friends. Um, that is where they're getting the marketing benefit. And so like the way I think of tournaments is sort of the way I believe TPCI thinks of organized play in tournaments is sort of the concept of like in business, there's like the idea of a loss leader. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that term. Well, let's pretend um, I'm not. What is basically it? A good, yeah. So it's like, for uh, it's basically like a product that you sell or something, a cost that you take to attract customers. And so a good example is like Costco sells like their hot dogs for like basically like less than a dollar, right? You get like a slice of pizza for $2. Yeah. The rotisserie chickens are all – so Costco's rotisserie chickens are $4.99 across the country no matter what, regardless of inflation. And the reason for that is they put the rotisserie chicken back in the kitchen. So if you're going to go get that $5 rotisserie chicken, you're going to walk through the whole store and then you're going to pick up some of the things you need. It's a big old and store, like, yeah. That's I, I, I am guilty of going to like, hey, what do I want for lunch? Let's just go. To, let's just go to the Costco food court, get like some cheap hot dogs and pizza, and then we'll go like do our Costco run. So like, that's the idea of a lost leader, right? Like, they're not making money on those chickens. They're not making money on the hot dogs and and um, chicken wraps or whatever. Or I forgot what they were called, but the chicken bakes, like, they're not making money on that. They're there as an incentive for then other, for you to go to the store to buy their other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that like organized play, the marketing, the the, the streams are for people, like casual people, to see on YouTube, oh, Pokemon, is there's this tournament. I want to go buy some cards. Um, and that's something they've learned, like, pretty recently. Like, they've only recently been less hostile towards, like, content creators and allowing them to use their trademarks and images, um, you know, in a, in a way that's, you know, that helps promote the game. Like, they've only recently started recognizing, and this is, like, in the last five years, mm -hmm. started recognizing the benefit of, of popular YouTubers um and and streamers on how like pack openings and things like that how that contributes to their audience and like the overall marketing of pokemon and can and i so add to that real quick function. as the content creator side yeah. of it to kind of co-sign what you're saying i i'm a big fan the person who is in charge of the content creation outreach for pokemon tpci is incredibly good at his job and probably doesn't get paid enough for how like how good he is at communicating for a corporation that's bad at communication. But the way they support competitive content creators is, I love it, please keep doing it, but they send us product to open up on stream, right? It's not anything competitive related. I don't know if they know how that would be done, even if they want to, but it doesn't seem like they want to. And I'm, I'm a big fan. I will happily open up on stream and for YouTube any and all product they give me because it's incredibly fun to do. But that's how they support us, right, is... Hey, competitive content creator, you know, Mellow Magikarp or Azul or whomever, open the product, which is going towards pack openings, selling product, not the competitive game, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this this is really all they can do because, I mean, if you just look at like views of like and popularity of people who do pack openings versus like competitive streamers, like it's massive. Only a few, like, 
it's massive difference because people, the general population is not, is wants to go to target and pick up a pack and open a shiny, you know, EX card or V card. Yeah. Um, they don't want to sit down and learn the game. And so the, to that end, like there is some, like the, the whole point of organized play, I think from a marketing perspective is that there's this appeal for someone to then to like, be like, Hey, I want to compete in a tournament. I want to go to local pre-release. Like I want their, like, this is just something else to do with the cards mm -hmm. or else it's just like collecting baseball cards and Pokemon would not be as, you know, would not be as pop. I mean, co baseball collections are obviously can get very pricey and, and, but there's, you know, it's not as mainstream and, in, you know, it, culturally mainstream as Pokemon is. And I think part of the contributing factor is not only that it's the Pokemon media franchise, but that there is a card game associated with the tournament structure and card game associated with it. Mm -hmm. Is this yeah. why you think pre-releases are the only local to have come back <laughs> outside of, I guess, league, I guess, but like, is this why pre-releases were rushed back and challenges and cups are like, yeah, this is eventually maybe. <laughs> yes. So if you view, if you view the entire working of organized play as a function of marketing and also keeping in mind that the person, the, the team of people who run organized play are severely underpaid which I also, I guess, I mean, they're, they're basically making, you know, entry-level position salaries in terms of a lot of, in terms of field, like where they could get a job elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Like it is not, I mean, I don't blame them at all. Like they're not given the resources, they're not paid enough. And then like, oh, and then their directive is to sell cards, not to foster a competitive, a vibrant, competitive and healthy tournament structure. And that's something yeah, that I think is anyone who's looked for jobs at TPCI has noticed as a whole, they underpay and they underpay because they can, right? Like I have, I have friends who work at TPCI and you know, I met them before they did that. And they're like, I'm going to take a pay cut because I want to work for Pokemon. Or we had a few episodes yeah. on to talk about TCG live, you know, Zach Roy, senior doom, incredibly talented artist can make a ton of money for Amazon and stuff, but he wants to work for Pokemon. He's like, I'm going to take a massive pay cut. If they ever actually call me back, Pokemon, please call the him back is quite good but it's you know you also kind of fall into a rut of you get what you pay for even if people want to work for pokemon i mean yes <laughs> i i i like many other players have once ventured down the dark alley of the career page <laughs> of the pokemon website and I mean, if you just look on like other sites like Glassdoor where you compare wages, like mm -hmm. they do not necessarily at certain levels pay competitive wages. I, I don't want uh, you to incriminate yourself if you want a job there. So, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I know that I am not seeking that. Uh... Hey, well, if I if I do take a job there, you will know that they they have they have uh, adjusted their their uh, compensation to competitive wages. Yeah, yeah, competitive wages. <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 a combination of many things, and I think I think as players, like there's there's some things we can do, and there's some things we can't do. Mm -hmm. um, but anything we propose as players, you have to. It cannot one cannot cost more money, and two, like you have to work around the bureaucracy, and and oftentimes that's like extremely difficult, and few have tried. Um, almost all have failed it's mm -hmm. just yeah it's 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 not a i it's not a great feeling especially as a longtime competitive player but i think for me i'm like very zen about the shortcomings of organized play um and 
just understand that, you know, we get what we get. And I'm, I'm, it's been described to me by someone that, you know, who works for organized play that it's mostly just a labor of love, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not Pokemon isn't expecting, you know, wild profits from this. They could get profits from this if they would ever cross promote with other companies, but Pokemon itself, the Japanese parent company is extremely conservative when it comes to their brand. And you would be right. If you're the number one media franchise in the world, um, by, by gross revenue for multiple years now, um, mm -hmm. you would be defensive of your IP and, and, you know, you don't want to affiliate with a brand and that brand is now known for using child labor for something. And like, so you just don't want to take on that particular, then it you know gets tied to you because your shirts are now being made of whatever, yeah. um, with, with child labor or like you're associating with a brand who is doing something that's unethical and Pokemon, you know, has tried to be, you know, Pokemon donates, this is something great they do. They donate to, to causes, you know, the, I know they donated like 200K to BLM. They donated some amount to Turkey, I believe, for the recent earthquake. Yeah, they're very recently. Am I yeah. wrong on that? Nope, you're correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, even like it took until 2019 to allow like white people to play organized events in Korea. And yeah. even this year. It was literally like last like, week, this right? Year, for Taiwan. Last week was the Singapore issue. Uh, the, the, sorry, the Japanese player in in, in Singapore who complained because oh. Taiwan only let people with a Taiwanese passport um, compete in their event. So, like any foreign local was just you know yeah. shafted. I have a uh, former student so, of mine so who Pokemon, plays the game, studies abroad in Taiwan, and that was one of the things that it was like, oh, you can play while you're there, and he's like, uh, actually, I can't. So that they was changed a, it. Yeah, it was credit. really recently. It. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so there, yeah, Pokemon is like, as a company is very conservative with my, my point in bring that, bring up yeah. this dichotomy is like the time they're very, they're very conservative, um, with how their brand is. They really care about their image and they want to you know, do good in the world. So they don't want to, they don't want to like cross them out with like monster, or like Red Bull or, you know, some other company to like, dude, if you put a Red Bull can on the Pokemon streams, I'm sure they would, there's some amount of money Pokemon can make for that. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Pokemon would never like jump in full into the esports scene like some of other competitive games do, uh, but at the same time, you know, there's that there's that other side, the bureaucratic side, where there's still some very interesting decisions being made at the micro level in terms of organized play because that general philosophy doesn't necessarily permeate all the way down. So, so this is why we get decisions that for 20 years, people, um, white people in Korea, cannot play organized play, like. Yeah, there's one specific person that really told you know a big deal about it because he's a Pokemon fan that moved to Korea, and it's just like, I mean, yeah. So it's 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 a mixed bag you get from from Pokemon and, and just organized play is often neglected. So I had on the outline a very simple question of will organized play improve, and I feel like I know where this is going to go, but a very simple: should we be holding our breath? for a stronger system better communication or have we got what we're gonna get and we just need to play the game or not i guess i'm gonna co-sign play the game because the game's fun but yeah uh, definitely play the game um but i don't think things are going to improve in the near term i really don't um i think it's been this way um I mean, there, there were drastic improvements after Nintendo first took over the franchise again in mm -hmm. 2003, 2004. 
Um, and there were some drastic improvements made around 2016, 2017 regarding prizing and also international championships and caring more about the circuit. I think it will be at some other point there will need to be a concerted effort by um, internally for um, for for things to change um, drastically, like a redesign of the system. They they won't. I, I just don't think they have the capacity um, to make media like to make intermediate or 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for incremental changes to the system. Like it's, I I just don't think. I mean, there's no, what's, what's amazing to me is that there's no active way to solicit feedback, not even from top players, but from general players. Like it's so hard. I've talked with Poke parents who like wanted to have feedback to Pokemon. I mean, it was only 20, it was the year 2018, I believe when everyone received an email who had filed a support ticket, mm -hmm. um, half a year later. <laughs> that all support tickets were being closed and that they assume that the issue has already been resolved. And if it's not been resolved, please write that. Um, cool. <laughs> so that was five years ago. I mean, they've gotten much better at answering support tickets, but it's mm -hmm. still like incredibly difficult to have your opinion heard. Um, I have like personally, because I, I guess I care, I have lobbied like for various things. Like one of the things that I had lobbied for that I'm glad was successful is changing the stipend to be quarterly instead of annual. I was one of the main beneficiaries of like before, right? Like uh, if you top forward Q, um, Q1, mm -hmm. then you would top four Q2 or like top 16 Q2, Q3, Q4 because yeah. the points carry over and it's worth snowballs. So if you don't do all Q1, there's just no way to, no way to compete for, you know, any of the monetary awards. And now, um, so I'm, I like, I talked to a few people who worked at TPCI and like, and that took a, still a little bit to get changed, but you know, it was something within the realm of the software that they could do. And like, I did gather some support from other top players who are saying like, Hey, you know, we, we want to have the option for someone to play really hard for one quarter and to be able to get a stipend, like more diversify who gets the stipends and travel awards. Right. This is what I mean. Right. Whenever you have a suggestion, it can't cost them more money. You just need to pay different people like that's sort of the idea and i i think like that's more fair but those are the types of like small changes you could make mm -hmm. um you know if you talk to the right people or just you know you know if you know it's something that's popular and get get, get the support from the right people there's other like rules changes that could potentially be made um like i was a big person who lobbied for the dpl and qpl instead of taking two prize cards and that got changed um, after some time. And, you know, I talked to some people about that too. And so like there are small changes that can be made, but I would not hold my breath for um, for like increased prize support or even better communication. Um, I think it just heavily depends on whoever the person running the show is. Like I know here, I'll say this and I don't mean, and again, I've, I've also said that these people are extremely underpaid and probably overqualified for their job. Mm -hmm. um, but like, if I was this bad at like communicating with my client base about tournaments and like locals, like world's invite structure, like if I was this bad, I would be fired immediately. I'm sick. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it would just not, like, it's not a, yeah, my, my, my manager would not stand for this. Like, and I think many people who are mm -hmm. listeners or parents here or just player, adult players will like, yeah, you cannot. This is not something that's tolerable in a professional setting. But again, not a professional setting. This is marketing. Yeah. Um, this is something to consider. 
right? And like something wild is that like um, I've booked my flight to UIC very recently. Mm-hmm. Even though registration is still not, not up. Yet. Oh, registration is not up yet. <laughs> I have a trip. I'm going on, I'm going on a trip to Taiwan um, probably by the time this is released uh, or, or maybe a little bit after to take my wedding photos. Um, cool. I'm like definitely concerned that like they're going to they're going to drop it like when I'm taking my wedding photos or like on one of the flights. So I've actually like set up some contingencies um, to prevent that from happening. Yeah. So like I've linked, I'm like set up a different Gmail account to link my RK9 Labs account to that new Gmail account so that when it drops, I can give the password to that account to one of my friends to sign <laughs> me up immediately. Like you should not be jumping through this many, like communication should not be this bad. Yeah. They know when the, they know when the tournament is, they know the dimensions of the venue. Like if they need help, like I can, can I can go to Ikea and buy them a hundred chairs. Like I don't like, <laughs> like this is, it's, it's, the, it's a logistical, like it is so, it, it is it is such a level of like incompetence and logistical failure mm-hmm. that they don't know exactly how many people are going to be there and haven't released registration yet. Um, and I mean, they're going to get away with it, right? Because people keep playing. And yep. once again, as I said before, they're getting the marketing benefit. Like the average layman does not know about the struggles of like signing up for tournaments or like for LAIC last year, there were multiple waves, you know, or at least at 9 a.m., 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. And like, there were Pokemons like on Facebook, like, oh, I really want my son to get into this event, but I had to work a shift and then I missed it. There was only a 10 second window. I mean, it's, it's honestly ridiculous that, you know, that their flagship events of the year have this poor communication, this poor planning. And I mean, it's really a slap in the face of the players, but you know, we love the game. We love the community and we want to keep it growing. Something that I guess I should have said at the start, and you made me kind of realize through that, is all these things are said, if there are any TPCI people listening, they are said out of love, but also out of, like you said, frustration. (laughs) It's like, we care a lot, and that's why we are so harsh about these things. This isn't like random, like, oh, let's just bash the company because no, this is very important to a lot of people. This is not just like nothing Sam is saying is exclusive to you, right? Like you represent technically unofficially a large amount of the player base. Right. So this is just like the frustrations of many people being voiced out there. Right. Yeah. And I've talked to TBCI employees who agree with me on a lot of these things. It's just that, you know, as a, as at a certain level, you don't have any capacity to make any change. Right. Yep. And I, and I fully appreciate that. The, and th- there's a few people who could make changes uh, in the position. I hope too, they're listening. <laughs> I, I hope I hope they're listening as well. I mean, this is. Uh, it, it, I mean, there there are a lot of things they're doing right. Right, I think is something to, something to be said as well. I mean, regionals attendance is growing. The, the stream is very professional. Like the tournament starts after switching to RK9 Labs. Tournaments have been running a lot smoother. Um, Imagine having a thousand eight hundred or a thousand four hundred person tournament where you have to look at paper standings, which was the you know, <laughs> the case up until yeah. I want to say like twenty seventeen is only maybe twenty eighteen the last time we had to look at paper standings at a regional San Diego twenty nineteen um, when they tried to do their own program instead of RK nine. I don't know if you were there, but oh yeah, their their oh, own custom program yeah, didn't work, and we had to do paper pairings for the last few rounds. It was bad. Yeah. 
Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. No, not no, interesting. And, terrible. And, uh, <laughs> interesting. No, no, it's good. It's good. It's great. It helps. It contributes to the Pokemon experience. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think, I think in general, a lot of players do love the game and like, this is a lot of frustration, but there's a lot of things being done right. Like I think, um, like for the regionals I see split, that was much needed, right? Like yeah. having, getting rid of states, the state system was terrible. I lived in the Northeast, so I benefited tremendously from the fact that there's, you know, 10 reasonable state championships within driving distance that I could go to. Whereas on the West coast, it's California, Oregon, Washington, yep, Nevada, sometimes had one. Idaho had one, I guess. Um, <laughs> and that's a state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, like, the, you would have to, you know, drive for such a long distance. So, like, there are some yeah. imbalances that are being corrected by by the globalization of the game. And I think, you know, I, I do appreciate the people who are behind the scenes working on this getting paid not enough. Um, my my paid comments are mostly geared towards the managerial level of, of TPCI, but getting paid not enough to, to take RBS, I guess, <laughs> from people like me. Sam, I want to say thank you. There has been a ton of information. I know we can keep talking about a lot of things. We had to cut off the, you know, Pokemon talk before before we got into the actual organized play stuff. So thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah. If the people want more from you, where can they find you? Yeah, so please follow me on Twitter at Samstoise, S-A-M-S-T-O-I-S-E. My favorite Pokemon is Blastoise. I haven't figured that out. Um, and I guess that's, um, that's all I'm on now. I don't have, I'm not trying to be a content creator, although... Um, one day I might, I don't know. I, I joke with some friends that once I have a child that's in the junior division, I might actually start <laughs> testing more and making content and getting actually good at Pokemon again. So I'm forced to play. Uh, but until I, then, yeah, please follow me on Twitter and some say hi to me at tournaments. Myself, Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube at Mellow underscore Magikarp. Follow the podcast at Lake of Rage Pod. If you like Sam, uh, be sure to let me know and maybe we'll invite him back. Who knows? But this has been another episode of the Lake of Rage podcast. We'll catch you all next week.